And we're in uh, verse 19 today. What we left last week, we saw Mary's passion for her deliverer. And that's what led her to the tomb early on that Sunday morning. Her passion for the one who delivered her from seven demons. The one, oh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. That's my fault. Anybody need a Bible? Just raise your hand and Tim will get you one. He's double dutying today. So um, Mary uh, goes to the tomb, and when she finally does see Jesus, and you went through it with us last week if you were here or you've read it before, uh, you would think she drops to her knees to wrap her arms around Jesus because that's how she would have uh, reached out to him uh, in that time, in that culture, rather than uh, around his neck. She would not have done that. Uh, but regardless of how she reached out to him, Jesus said, don't, don't cling to me. Don't try to hold on to me. For I've not yet ascended to my father and your father until my brethren. Also, we read in Mark, where he says, I'm going before them. I'll see them in Galilee. But he's going to surprise them a little earlier than Galilee as well. And so they're hiding out still, having heard from the women. There's been a couple of um, personal appearances by Jesus to some people. But as a group, they're up there in the, in the upper room. Wherever they're hiding out could be the same place they had the Passover, but we don't know that. Uh, it says this in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, <clears throat> where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Shalom, or peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. First of all, Jesus does come and say, Shalom. Our language would say, peace be unto you. Our culture today is very casual. What's up? How you doing? (laughs) What? You know, uh, hey, hit me. You know, just, it's okay, but don't assume that we've achieved perfection here in our culture. And that we have learned how to relate perfectly and that we have kept and garnered and gathered and, and um, appreciated all good things. When you go to the East, when I go to Malawi, it's a greeting is really important. When you meet somebody after you just saw them last night, the, the night before. You know, here I see somebody, if I'm at some event at a retreat or something, you see somebody, hey, you know, <laughs> hey. There it's, hello, Rick. How did you sleep last night? And they actually, actually, I mean, I know people don't always care when they speak, but there's a real care, and they've been taught to care about greeting you and hearing about how you are. Everything is slowed down. See, we have sped things up where it's point A to point B, point B to point C, point C to point D. Hey, I'm doing this, but i got to go there. My next thing I'm here, I'm going to, i seen you, hi. Hey, <laughs> it's terrible, quite honestly. Because we never really get to point B. Because there's always another one waiting for us that we're watching to do, you know. And uh, generally speaking, not anybody in this room, you're all have achieved perfection. But me and the rest of these guys out here with me, I represent the world to you. So there they just slow things down. It can be kind of annoying to a Westerner. Like you're just anxious to get going and you just want to say hi and move on. But they want to relate to you. And they want to engage with you and give honor to you as a person that they value. What a concept. How did you sleep last night? Let's start right here. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So, 
you know, guys get people get up to speak publicly and they say, "How you guys doing?" That's just really weird. Like, you're, what are you going to do? Answer one by one? It's a greeting, isn't it? I think probably we should say something like, "I hope you're all well. It's nice to see you." Probably be a little more classy. But how you guys doing? Um, shalom was even deeper. Shalom, of course, the Hebrew word for peace, may the peace of God be upon you. God's peace upon you. And it actually intended for the Jewish people who are actually thinking and participating in their Judaism in a, in a rich way, it was something that you were conferring a blessing on someone. God's peace be upon you, sir. God's peace be upon you, ma'am. It was truly spoken with that kind of depth. Uh, did everybody do it all the time, or did it become just a pattern? Sure, it could. Humans. But a true blessing pronounced, there's power in words, and in the manner in which you say words. And these guys who are sitting there still in fear and shame and confusion, because now they've heard he's risen, and they're not so sure that's a, they understand it, and also that means more pressure on them. from the. They're already hated by the Jews, and they're waiting for their leaders to come and get them. You know, now the risen Lord, though, comes, enter Jesus, and there he speaks peace in his glorified body, which transcends the physical. The closest we can understand is, of course, our Star Trek transporter. You know, that's what we would relate to, wouldn't we? For Jesus just wah, 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 appearing in the room. I can't do those sound effects properly, but you get the point. Uh, no, st- no tomb, no stone. No cross, no bolted door, nothing can keep him from rising, from coming, from entering, from being with his disciples, you know. There was a song, I think it was Benny Hester years ago, he came out of an empty tomb to fill your empty heart. Praise the Lord. Jesus is risen. Yet, the marks of his sufferings are on him. He's in his glorified body. He has poured out his blood. And yet his marks of his sufferings are internally, eternally embedded in his body. And this isn't just a symbolic thing that's happening. Because you see, even John, who wrote this book, who was given the revelation, when he's in chapter, what we call chapter 5 of Revelation, is, is looking there and he sees a lamb as though having been slain from the foundation of the world. If you've worked on a farm, uh, if you've worked on a ranch, if you've worked at a slaughterhouse, an animal that's been slain, even if you're very delicate and gentle, it's a bloody mess. A lamb having been slain from the foundation of the world. See, when we go there, we're going to have glorified bodies like his. It says our bodies will be like unto his. There's one difference. Your scars will not remain. Scars that you may carry with you all the way to the grave, you will not take beyond the grave. And we'll talk more about that before we're done. But so in Isaiah 49, 16 says, I've inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Do you love that? So in that hole where that nail was thrust through, it's actually your name, written permanently in his wounds. So and it's, uh, it's, it really helped the disciples when they see him because they thought that the women were hallucinating, but now they're seeing him. But you know, it's really going to help them on several levels that they look into his hands and his side, because they won't later on go, were we just dreaming? Did we just all hallucinate this? There's such a depth there, but there's certainly far more to this. 
And their testimony now, they've seen the real Jesus, and their testimony is being solidified. In 1 John 1, John the Apostle, again, in another book that he wrote, 1 John, he says, that which we've seen and we've handled, we've touched and felt and we've handled of the word, we've held closely of the word of life. We've experienced life. We've experienced the eternal life of Jesus Christ. We've been with him. We want to share that with you because we want you to know that we have fellowship, and our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and that's the fellowship you can have. And, and that testimony is that you don't have to know. I'm sorry, we tell you so that you will know his sacrifice was real. It was effectual, and there's no need for you to be separated from God by your failures anymore. There's joy for you. We have a testimony to share with you. And we're filled with joy, and we want you to be filled with that same joy. Now, watch how this works. Verse 21 through 23. So they're excited, they're rejoicing, they're comforted that it's Jesus. And then it's like he resets. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, shalom. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, this is a deep subject because it it, it brings up a lot of issues within the church. But first of all, I'm imparting my peace to you. Now, and they're receiving that peace, and they're they're enjoying this moment, of course. (coughs) Pardon me. But um, think with me. Do the leaders, the Jewish leaders, still hate these guys? Has any cha- anything changed outside the doors? No. But isn't it interesting how when Jesus comes into your moment that your fears tend to go away? And you, you know, you're saying, well, he hasn't come to me quite that way. That would really be helpful. <laughs> I understand that. But nonetheless, um, the thing to do with the Scripture is not, don't overkill something that isn't really there just to make it say what it doesn't say. But don't reject the beauty of what it's saying that can be ministering to your spirit. And it certainly ministers to my spirit that when Jesus makes himself known to me, whatever I'm going through is certainly less fearful and overwhelming to me. When Jesus is not present in my, not that he's not there, but in me, my attitude, everything is overwhelming to me. Am I the only one? I'm not. Okay. So they still want to kill him, but they're overwhelmed with joy. He's risen! And they're not thinking about their fears. And now they know, in their minds, I can see this. Now, I'm not dictating that it's this way, but I can kind of see they're going, hey, we don't have to worry about anything. Jesus will take care of our light work. Those Pharisees, eh, Roman soldiers, eh. Jesus, take care of my light work, would you? Did you ever use that term? Okay, so you didn't respond. Okay. <laughs> yet, not, yet it wasn't going to happen the way many people might think. He says, as the Father sent me, I send you. How the Father sent him? The power of the Holy Spirit anointed for his purpose in unity and oneness with the Father. And Jesus, though, now breathes life on them. Adam was a piece of dirt, and God breathed life into Adam and made him a living soul. But now God is giving life to spirits that have been dead in sin. And the first born-again people are really these guys. If Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit and actually breathes on you, I would say that person has been given the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no 
question about it. And so we know that the day of Pentecost is coming, and the church is going to be empowered, and thousands are going to get saved, and there's this process going on. But what you'll notice, and this is what is going to be, as the Father sent me, so I send you, that you never see the apostles in the New Testament do this. Do what, Rick? Well, let me interrupt myself. Before I tell you what, you never see them do. Let me tell you how a simple understanding of developing doctrine in the New Testament In the Gospels, if Jesus said it and or did it, and then you read in the book of Acts where the disciples said it and or did it, and you go to the letters, and and in the letters that same truth is discussed and explained and talked about in the same manner, and there's a clear connection between the Gospel, the book of Acts, and the letters... I'm not saying the only thing God does have to be on those basis, but you are, you're on solid ground. This is a doctrine of the New Testament. Okay? You know, it's not say, I take a verse, some verse obscurely from in the middle of a chapter out of the Old Testament, and a verse obscurely out of a chapter in the New Testament, and make them connect and say they say all this stuff. You know, then Balaam's donkey in Numbers 22 or 3 spoke to him. And then New Testament, all things are possible with God. Oh, here's a new doctrine. We're going to go find donkeys and have them pray over them that they'll speak to us. Could it happen? I suppose, uh, Wilbur. (laughs) Could it happen? It could happen. Is it a Bible doctrine? Do you make that a practice of the church? No. That's chaos. That kind of stuff is chaos, where people just pick out stuff, whatever. Now, on this one, of course, we have, we have the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church in disagreement. Folks, there are beautiful Catholic people who love Jesus passionately. There are beautiful Protestant people who love Jesus passionately. There are people sitting in pews in Catholic churches that don't love Jesus. There are sitting, people sitting in Protestant churches that don't love Jesus. Are we clear? There's just people everywhere, and there's these, there are these distinct groups and you can't identify differences without being mean-spirited or hateful or anything. And you say, well, it's a difference. We just don't agree. And this is important. It's an important part of, uh, if you want to call it the Protestant Reformation, is that we don't look to priests as being absolvers of our sin or complete and ultimate judges of our faith. See, when you look at what Jesus said here, he said... Uh, Whosoever sins you retain are retained. Whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain are retained. Sorry. And uh, Jesus also said in Matthew 16 to Peter when he said, You're the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. You're, 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 you're the Messiah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. And I give to you the keys to the kingdom. Keys. How many of you have a 16-year-old or soon approaching you know, or seven, you know, how about that moment that you first gave the keys to the car to a kid that had learned to drive, kind of? <laughs> you let them take it on their own. It was like this now. <laughs> Come on, Dad, it's the old beater. I mean, it'd be a blessing to you if I crash it. <laughs> you know, but anyway, it's, it's, you know, it's a big deal the keys, the keys to the kingdom. Did that mean it was Peter personally that he owned the show, that he was the leader, 
and he would be the new New Testament high priest, as the Old Testament would have a high priest that would say, forgiven on the Day of Atonement. Not necessarily, my friends. In, in Matthew 23, Jesus also talked about the kingdom of heaven with the Pharisees. And he said, you, when he told Peter, sorry, when he told Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. Oh, hey, watch me. <laughs> well, Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, woe unto you, you religious leaders, for you bind up the kingdom of heaven against men and you don't allow them to get in. Same word of binding. For neither do you enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are trying to enter to enter. Did they control somebody's salvation? Were they the ultimate authority? No, but they were using their authority in an evil way that was keeping people away from God. They were closing the door to heaven on people. Not com- See, that's, it wasn't complete. It wasn't like that's the whole story. It was a, 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 a process and a picture of what Jesus is also saying here about God's forgiveness. So when you look at the apostles in the New Testament, you never see them say, I absolve you of your sin, or I retain your sin. What do you see? In Acts chapter 2, the, Peter's preaching, and the brethren, the Jewish guys out there on the day of Pentecost say, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, for the promise is to you and to your children and to as many as are far off that the Lord our God shall call. There's no, you, there's no inference there that he personally is the forgiver of their sin, but he preaches the absolute power of the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. When you get to Acts chapter um, 8, you have Philip who goes down to Gaza from where he's preaching and leading thousands to the Lord, and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the road there, and, the, and he starts explaining to him Isaiah 53 in his, in his uh, chariot, and the guy says, look, there's water right here. Why can't I be baptized? And Peter says, if you believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, you may. He doesn't say, by my power or my authority. You just see this very simple. Well, Peter, uh, Philip's not one of the apostles. He was a deacon. Well, he was a deacon that was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he was preaching the same gospel as they were. And he's the only other guy besides Jesus in the New Testament that kind of did the transporter deal. Because right after that, he comes up out of the water, and he's gone. Was that better than wah, wah, wah? I can't do that high voice thing that people do. But anyway, that transporter sound. But uh, I think he was operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he had the keys to the kingdom. And I think he was conferring forgiveness. Do you get what I'm saying? Acts chapter 10, Peter is standing in a Gentile's house, which he's never been, and he's telling them about Jesus, not expecting anything. There's no invitation given. With every head bowed and every eye closed, He's not even in that at all. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles, and they start speaking out in languages, praising God. They're getting saved. Their sins have been received the Holy Spirit, and he identifies it and says, well, I guess God receives the Gentiles. These guys are saved. There's nobody can keep them from being baptized. When he goes back to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 11, he he has to argue with the guys come up against him, the locals. The leaders that say, what are you doing going into Gentile's house? And what are you doing baptizing these guys? Are you crazy? He goes, listen, oh my God, if you were there, you would have seen this happen. What would you have done? You know, 
I said, oh, okay. So there's no discussion about the apostles and nothing in the New Testament that confers them to be sitting in the, in the position of ultimate authorities over your salvation or forgiveness. Paul says, we are not lords over your faith. We are helpers to your joy. And so, but, but listen, don't lose the clarity and the power and the authority that is in these words. As a Christian, we declare the gospel of forgiveness. We declare the gospel of God's that includes the understanding that to reject it is God's righteous judgment is before you. It's really the great commission that's on the front of your bulletin, Matthew 28, uh, go into all the world and preach this gospel to every living creature. Listen, this is um, make disciples of all nations. This is, uh, in, in the gospel of John, this is the great commission at work. And you are my witnesses. Go and preach and teach. You know, Peter says in his book, chapter 5, Peter, an elder, to, the, to my elders around, I am also your fellow elder. That's what he calls himself, a fellow elder. He has authority. He has responsibility. There's order to the kingdom. But he's just a fellow elder to the other elders. And he's a brother to the Christians. And that's what we all are, is we're brethren, brothers and sisters. There are roles of leadership and responsibility. There are gifts of the Spirit that anoint people to do specific things. But one of those is not being the ultimate forgiver of sins. Or We're all representatives of God. You, my friend, have a testimony if you're a Christian. And you, my friend, represent God to the people around you. And there's no escaping. There's no escaping it. That's who you are in Christ. And that's a good thing. So in, uh, we're going to come back to this whole picture paints together as far as I can see. And that is um, in verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve. I, that, that would bug me. I'm not Rick, I'm the twin. <laughs> no, make him the twin and I'm Rick. You know, I'm Thomas. So anyway, I just personally get offended by so many things. Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. I don't think they said this. What's been up today, guys? Oh, we saw Jesus and uh, we got some new uh, bread. <laughs> We've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of his nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. <laughs> what a doubting Thomas. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came and stood, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving but believing. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? That means you have a choice. You have a choice to be believing. You have a choice to be unbelieving. And you wouldn't think you'd even have to say anything to him right there. But words are important. They're not meaningless. Speech is important. Preach Christ at all times, but when necessary, use words is a beautiful... I have that plaque. It really says a lot about what your life should be. But my friends, words are still important and necessary. It is necessary to preach with words. You may have somebody come. Well, at any rate, 
Peter, uh, Jesus speaks to Thomas, don't be uh, faithless, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Wow. You gotta, I can't imagine how tough it would be on Thomas in his position, honestly. I mean, everybody is excited. They're stoked. They've seen Jesus, and he didn't. He's depressed. Now, there's two sides to this. Number one, his brothers that he'd been with for three and a half years, day and night with Jesus, ups and downs and everything, these are his trusted brethren. They're telling him, he was here. We saw him right here. You know, he showed us. I won't believe unless I see it myself. He's not believing his brothers. Now, let's be fair to Thomas. How many of the disciples believed until they saw Jesus? Do you know what this means? Zero. None of them believed until they saw Jesus. Is this perhaps a mirror into their own unbelief from the Lord Jesus using Thomas's trouble? Because uh, Jesus comes back and shows all of them, and I believe there's many layers to this. You're going to see things in this story that I'm not mentioning, and I understand that. But they, they saw him, and he showed himself to them, and he comes back to show them not only for Thomas's sake to show Thomas that he's there and real, which is wonderful, <clears throat> but to show all of them, I believe, the value of their testimony and the value of their faith. The value of their testimony and the value of their faith in Jesus. You see, they saw him physically, and not everybody that they meet is going to see Jesus physically, are they? In the end, he appears to about 500 people. So they're going to have a core group who actually saw Jesus. You know, it tells us in Acts, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus appeared to 500 or more people over the course of those 40 days when he was risen before he ascended. Okay? I am not suggesting to you that Jesus never appears to anyone after that. We know stories of people who've had wonderful moments with the Lord. The last, Paul, the apostle, when he becomes apostle, says, last of all, he appeared to me. Meaning last of all as being an apostle, not last of all as having Jesus appear to people. But, by and large through history, how many more people were going to see, how many people are really going to see Jesus in the flesh? Barring visions and dreams that are real, these are, this is it. And, as the Father sent me, so I send you. No man has seen the God at any time, but the Son has declared him. As the Father sent me, I sent you. I came here declaring my Father, revealing him to you. And a lot of people didn't believe. But it's still working. And you're going to go and do the same thing under my direction and leadership. They saw and believed. But are they better than the next spiritual generation like the rest of the people? Like they're the first generation, they're the uh, charter members of the upper room. They're not better. They're not better. Blessed are those that haven't seen and have yet believed. Would that include you? That's my testimony. 
And that's the testimony of the disciples' testimony, is that people have come to faith in an invisible God who is revealed by miracles and wonders, by his word and the lives of believers who testify of his grace. And that includes you. Yeah, Jesus knew that people everywhere were going to need to hear the words, your sins are forgiven. And I can say that to people. Now let's get back to the power of these words, not just diminishing because we don't agree necessarily with the Catholic view of a priesthood or the Pope. What we do know is that we can declare the forgiveness of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, I don't tell somebody, you know, Mia says to me, I just feel so bad, I've sinned, I need my sins forgiven. Well, Jesus will die right now on the cross to forgive your sins. What do I say? Jesus already died on the cross and already paid for your sin. He just wants you to turn to him, confess your sin, and believe in him. And if you do that, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, John says in 1 John 1, 9, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you confess your sin? Are you tr- Sure, we play a part in people's lives. Don't diminish it. But it's not about you. It's not about you. But you, when you speak, words do matter. Preach Christ at all times and when necessary, use words. But don't think that it almost will never be necessary to use words. The the preaching by your life will cause people to ask you, what's the deal with you? It'll cause people to be open with you and say, you know, I feel like I can trust you. I notice that you walk in integrity. You know, you're a little bit different around here. You go to work, you know, the first thing you do is you don't speak. Is In this sense, if you don't um, complain at work, and you don't curse and tell dirty, vile jokes and, and, and use your mouth in a negative way. And you don't gossip about other people at work. You're already going to be different. How are you at work? How is your silent witness? Because that's all you got to do right there to start. Because that will automatically make you different. Because almost everywhere you go, what do people do? <laughs> Complain about the boss or the coworker? You know, I'm not saying everybody's vile and wicked and their, you know, fangs are coming. I'm just saying that it's not our normal course. Our normal course in our society is exactly that. It's coarse. It's harsh. There's a lot of mean-spirited humor and a lot of antagonism and a lot of complaining, isn't there? I, I I don't walk around in a dour state because of this. I'm just being honest about what I kind of notices a lot of places. You're salt and light. But then, there comes a time people need to hear. And you know, they need to hear about God's forgiveness. 30 years ago or more, in Madrid, Spain, uh, a man took out a full-page advertisement in the local big Madrid newspaper. The Madrid Times, whatever, you know? And the page was just big print. Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me Thursday at 1 o'clock at Retirio Park, which was the big park downtown. And everybody knew where that was. Maybe he said the spot, you know, meet me by the statue or something. 
And uh, Thursday rolls around, and the dad gets makes his way. You know, this is very crowded at getting to Retiro Park because gathered at Retiro Park are 800 Pacos looking for their dad. 800. Do you think that people need to be restored in relationship? And Paul says, he says, I plead with you. Not only we are called to the ministry of reconciliation. Now you first be reconciled to God, and now let's reconcile other people to God. You know, we're not here to cause division between people. We're not here to cause battles between people. We're not here to take sides about issues that are not of, a, of clear importance that we need to stand on. There are enough of those that you have to do if you're going to be true. Don't do the ones, don't have opinions that are more important to you about everything in the world, that that's what people know you for, is your opinions about everything. Do you know how many people care about your opinion and my opinion? The same amount you care about theirs. How much is that? Well, I think, blah, 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 blah. And I think, blah, blah, blah. Well, Rick, you're giving a lot of opinions here. Your job is to discern where I'm giving you opinions and where I'm giving you the gospel. And you do have that job. You are supposed to look at this with integrity. And you're, you're supposed to do the same thing I'm doing. It is my job to teach clearly and accurately and do the best I can. It is your job to listen clearly and accurately and do the best you can. Did you know that? And it's okay to say, well, I don't agree with that. But you also need to say to yourself, here's why I don't agree with it. Here's my biblical basis. Having an opinion doesn't mean anything. Having conviction means the world. David was a man in his best place of conviction. He wouldn't lift his sword against Saul. Everything in the world said, kill Saul because God's brought him to you. All these, everybody's on your side. All the consensus is there. We've taken a vote. It's a miracle of God. None of, all of that was superseded by the fact that David had conviction. Conviction isn't what you say. That's opinion. Conviction is what you do. And David said, I'm not touching Saul. And he was guilty in his heart for cutting off a corner of his robe because he had a sensitive conscience. God help us. Your conscience cannot be determined by the guy next to you or the person at work or because you're not as bad as Barney. I was going to say Joe, but we have several Joes here. (laughs) I'm not as bad as Barney. Are there any Barneys in the room? Um, That is not a standard. That isn't the standard to live by. I'm not as bad as that guy. What a horrible way to live. So, to, so Paco, come home. Paco, know that there's forgiveness. All is forgiven. People you don't think want it. People you don't think need it in their mind do. So to know God's forgiveness is to see him and to touch his wounds. And Peter explains it. And we have it in uh, New Living on the back of your uh, on the back of your page, just to give you a sense uh, and a, a refreshing way, I guess you'd say, uh, I love it and New King James is fine for me, but I thought maybe this would be meaningful. And through your faith, God is protecting you by the, his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Has anybody here been going through trials for what you would call a long while? Uh, I don't think he's mocking you. I think he's putting it in an eternal perspective. 
These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. I mean, I don't understand that, how that I'm going to receive. It's not talking about um, his praise to him. It's talking about God's praise to us, which is just almost scary. But, you know, he doesn't share his glory with anyone in terms of people trying to take it from him for themselves. He'll never do that. All the glory goes to him. And yet through the, gener- through the centuries, or excuse me, the eons, endless time, timelessness, God's going to reveal his glory to you and pour it out upon you. Go figure. You can't. You love him even though you've never seen him. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but if I said how many of you have never seen Jesus, mine would be the first to go up. I I've, had, I've had visions, dreams, and miracles, but I haven't seen the resurrected Jesus like standing with me. I've not touched his wounds in that way. You love him even though you've never seen him. Blessed are those who, having not seen him, believe. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls, the completion of God's work in your life. But it starts, it, it goes through testing. It goes through testing. There's no product anybody puts on the market if they have any sense uh, that they don't test first. They do a test market on it too. They test it. You've watched the car commercials where they show a car bouncing on spinning to see how long it'll go till it falls apart and they go on those race tracks to see how much the torque and turn and pressure on the wheels. They test medicines. Everything gets tested. And so does your faith. Last Thursday was the anniversary of the Challenger. 30 years since the Challenger exploded. Do you remember where you were if you're old enough? I remember I was painting a, house, painting a lady's condo in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, I'm back in a back room and she says... She had the TV on as they were launching, and I was listening and checking in and painting, and, and I was interested, of course, Christy Allen McCullough and all this, and <coughs> pardon me, and all of a sudden I hear her say, she kind of comes to the door where I am, something's happened. And I went out and I saw it, when you see those two plumes going this way like this, you go, it's over. I said, oh my goodness, they're gone, they have to be. And uh, you know this backstory is that Morton Thiokol is the contractor, engineering company that built the O-rings, heavy-duty rubber O-rings between the sections of the rocket with the fuel in it. And they had only been proven and tested down to 33 degrees, 32 degrees, whatever. But for a, a freak thing in Florida, it went below freezing that January. And so that means that there's frost or freezing on these O-rings. And the guys from the NASA, and do you remember what was going on with NASA? Deep trouble. If we don't get a rocket up in the air quickly, soon, they're going to cut our funding and it's over for us. We've got to get this rocket up in the air. We're not talking about necessarily people of low integrity. Don't automatically assume. A bunch of jerks working there with no integrity, These are genius people who went through Ph.D. stuff, went through summer math camp instead of going to play, and got, you know, you just don't go from your Slurpee machine to NASA. You know, I've mastered the Slurpee machine. I'm ready to go to engineer for NASA. And so these guys are high-caliber people, but they're human, aren't they? 
And how do you tell how somebody's going to do with integrity? It's not what you do when things are easy. It's what you do when things are hard. Integrity, who you really are, is what you do when things are hard. And none of us is above these mistakes. And they called Morton Thiokol said, hey, what do you think about these O-rings? You know, it went down to whatever degrees. And Morton Thiokol said, look, these are not tested below whatever degree, 40 degrees, 35. We, you know, this is an unusual thing. And we cannot guarantee that those O-rings will hold up under uh, launch. Yeah, but, you know, it was only a little bit of frozen. Don't you think they probably work? They might work just fine, but we cannot guarantee that. They've only been tested to this degree. Are you with me? But the guy said, hey, it's, they'll hold. We, we got to launch. What do you think, for those who are still alive, of those men and women, what do you think every year on January 28th is like for them? Every... What do you think it was like for them for, you know, many of them lost their job there. You seek to save your life, you lose it. You know, it would have been really hard to say, no, we're not launching. We can't guarantee the safety. The program goes down. Whoever may push the button, the program goes down. But I can live with that. I can live with the right decision even when bad things happen from it. Can you do that? Because that's what you're required. If you're going to walk in integrity, if you're going to be a man or a woman of God, or just a person of integrity, you're going to make the right decision even when it costs you. Period. There's no escaping this. This is where you find out who you're really going to be. Not when it's easy. That doesn't mean anything. So, those guys live every day in regret. And pain, I'm sure. And some of them are genius, genius guys who were really good, good, inhumanly great people. Better than me. I mean, I'm sure there was really great people that did really good stuff, volunteer work, everything. But you know what these people need? Your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Do you want to come to Christ and let him wash away your sins because it's already been paid for? And, and somebody like you might be the person that tells somebody like that, like anybody. Because whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven, whosoever you retain are retained. There's a chance for people to be forgiven because it's already been purchased. And most people are going to come to the Lord not by large group events. I don't care how many Billy Graham crusades, Greg Laurie crusades. In most of the world, through most of history, through most of anywhere you've been, it's going to be people to people in small environments like a little church or your household or down the street or at the camp or with the uh, baseball team for your kids and people talking to people and sharing the good news with them. And I know the world wants to shut us up and I know the culture wants to say it's the only place we can talk about Jesus right here and then they don't care. That's fine. But your church is everywhere and you are everywhere. And God wants to use you and I to share his word. Proportionally, very few people really come by these things. Now listen, your faith isn't just, and your testimony isn't just, well, when I was seven, I got saved. 
the Sunday school teacher or my mom led me in a prayer. Or, and your testimony isn't just like mine. When I was 18, the, the wheel, two tires blew on my car as I said those words and, and this miracles happened. People have all kinds of testimonies. I have a dramatic one. Some of you do. Some of you, have, you think your testimony is very bland. You just believed in Jesus at some point. But your testimony is more than the day you got saved or how you came to salvation. Your testimony is how God has made himself real to you and how you have wounds. Many of you, and like me, have wounds. If you've lived some life, we get some wounds, don't we? We go through trials and troubles. Some are our fault directly by what we've done, and some have been imposed upon us by other people's sin. And, and there's also the mixture of all of that. Do you, would you like me to sort that out? <laughs> Forget about it. All I know is we have wounds. But our wounds don't go past the grave. And our wounds can teach us to go to someone and say, Look, Jesus is with me. Touch my wounds and see that my pain, he's taken more than my pain. I still have some pain, but I also have a Lord who's with me who will carry me. And someday I will have a glorified body like his without the pain, without the marks. Because that's what he's done for me. And I believe him. And I've been, But you've been through hell on earth. That's right. And that's the only hell I'm going to go through. Because I'm going to go to heaven. And I've learned to trust him for all that. And to give that to him. And the power of his forgiveness. Don't diminish your testimony. Don't let the enemy lie to you. You, you may have the specific testimony of your salvation as I do. And some of you do. But we all have a testimony to share. And it's people that haven't seen Jesus, but you have. And to focus on that. Listen, sometimes we, um, when spring comes, some of us are going to get very diligent to work on our lawns. I've come full circle from being the guy that said, it's all going to burn, why bother? I'm a Christian, my wife didn't really go for that. <laughs> she said, you know what you are, Rick? Huh? You're lazy. <laughs> I said, well, that's true also. But, uh, <laughs> but I believe in, it's fine. And you may even have an artistic way that you take care of your yard. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless it's an idol to you. The question isn't can you do these. That's just a picture. Mowing your lawn. You work at it. Fertilizing it. You know, watering it. Do you ever work on your testimony? Well, you shouldn't have to work on it. It's just the Holy Spirit comes. Well, does that happen? Is that what happens for you? Some of you here might flow so freely in the way the Holy Spirit uses you that you think I'm a fool for saying this right now. But most of you struggle to share testimony. I meet way more people that's like, I just, I I don't know what to say. I mean, then they say this and I don't know. Are you working on it? Do you ever work on it? I don't mean sit in front of a mirror and say, hey, brother. You could be saved. You know, I'd make sure that tooth sparkles or something. You know. But working on it is, do you think about it? Do you pray about it? Do you look for verses that you can explain about how God's worked in your life and put real flesh and blood to them through you and your life? Do you know you can do that? You know, you can come to Bible studies that where we talk things over and do stuff. You can find prayer groups to pray with. You can make effort to do it. If you're struggling with this, and most people do, you know, how much energy do you put into working on it? Or do you just expect it to fall from heaven and it's just done, like everything else in your life? It doesn't work that way. 
You know, God has us participate with him. So I would ask some of you to think about, have you been working on, do you work on it? Because we need to speak the truth and the need and the provision of forgiveness, and we need to not wait till we're asked. You know, I understand friendship evangelism, but if you wait 20 years and the person doesn't know any more about your faith than the first discussion you had, that's not friendship evangelism. There's no evangelism going on. Words are important. Actually confronting somebody. I I think about people who are distant from the Lord, but, you know, the hardest one is a believer who's just away from the church, uh, doesn't have any direct involvement in the body of Christ, and they say, I'm fine, I love Jesus, and you can't really talk to them. They're not interested beyond that. Well, that's a hard nut to crack, and you're not responsible to fix it. But, you know, to give up and to spend years with somebody and never approach them and talk to them and not really dig in to help them see what they're missing is unfaithfulness on our part. It really is. I mean, I don't, you know me. I don't know how to talk without being sometimes intense, but I won't back down because I see myself. I mean, I'm very comfortable, and yet I still can choke. And I'm forgiven, and I'm loved, and I know God's with me, but I'm not hiding in that. I want to go for it. Don't you want to go for it? Don't you want to care about people more than worry if they get mad at you? Don't you want to be a bigger person, not a smaller person? Don't you want to really go, even if they're mad at me, if it's the right thing, and I need to say it to them, kindly, gently, but clearly? Wouldn't I do that? You know, and you know what starts? It starts in your little, your family, among family, and, and there's family members you've already talked to so much, you really have to back off from verbally constantly, you know, you can't beat them over the head every day. Don't misunderstand me there. But you have other relationships that are like you see people, and they just kind of flatten out after the initial, and then you just stay the same. Now, here's a question for you. Do the people like that you spend time with, do you, do you, do you encourage each other in your faith? Is number one. Is that happening? Number two, is there just no, is it flatlining? There's no encouragement. There's not a lot of discouragement other than the lack of encouragement. But there's nothing happening there. It just goes on the same all the time. Number three, is there negative things happening? They're pulling you down or they're going down and you're not standing up. You know, I've had people sit in my house that are good friends that flew into town to be with me. And listen, I'm the person that's had to be rebuked or instructed to. Do you understand that I know that? Right here in this church, I've been have people say, Rick, you know, this, and I needed to hear it. So it's not one-sided here, but I, I, I want to express to you it's hard. I do know it's hard. I had two friends, and they were really good friends, and they were joking around, and they kept talking about this thing in an inappropriate manner, an attitude towards somebody in an inappropriate manner. And I was, it was like, I was really struggling. Like, and I thought, wait a minute. I love these guys. What they're doing is wrong, and I know it, and I'm sure they know it, but they're not seeing it, and they're sitting in my house, and you know what? If they're mad at me, they're mad at me, and I say, hey, guys, that attitude is wrong. Here's why, and you know it. You know, they didn't hate me. They left immediately, but (laughs) I had to write a letter recently to someone that I could not communicate with otherwise. And as somebody that I have the highest respect for, he's five times the man I am in Christ. But I could see something that needed to be addressed. And I spent some time praying, and it was like it just kept coming back, like, Rick, 
This isn't about whether he likes you or not. This is about whether you love him or not. You may be the only voice he's going to listen to. He may not listen to you. But he'll never hear it if you don't say it. We have to get over ourselves. If we want to be effective, we can't just go blast everybody. Don't load your gun armed for bear and just can't wait to blast people. If you have this hunger to just rail on people and tell them how wrong they are, now there's a problem for you. You should be very, you should have a trepidation about it. You should say, oh God, keep me. But, but also when, you, when I'm talking about here, the Holy Spirit will make real to you in your moment. I don't have to give you a list of moments. I don't have that list. You will know. And haven't you had that time where you knew you're getting that nudge or a friend says to you, you start to go in a direction and a friend says to you, hey, Rick, I don't know if that's such a good idea, you know. It's like, oh, nah, nah. You just, I'm going for it. It's good. And then you live to regret it. Has anybody else had this moment where you just push aside and that's that voice that said maybe a little caution here would be good? No, it's okay. Man, I've had a bunch of those, you know. We could have a contest. You know, sometimes that's the same thing the Holy Spirit's using that person. Sometimes it is a still, small voice you know, that comes to you. You know, better to, uh, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs tells us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, you know people who just butter each other up and just praise each other on TV they, you know, I mean, the next week, if the person has a stumbling, then they're up there making fun of them and railing on them. And we, we, we're appalled by it. Well, how about you and me? It's the same thing. Like with, We want the politicians to be honest and straightforward and clearly say what they mean and mean what they say. Well, do you do that? You who expect politicians to be that way, do you do that? You know, it's so easy for us, isn't it? So God is working in our lives. These are wounds of friends. There's the we, ladies who were at ladies study. What did you have? You had the we, the people who are really in the groove together and seeking the Lord together. That's important. But the we has to become the you. Not one you, but the whole you. A group of you, of people who are together seeking the Lord. And from there, those people don't turn inward. They turn outward and look for the they. The people that they can bring into the you that can go into the we. And I couldn't improve on that, having watched it with my wife. And I thought, it certainly fits today because it starts with you and your family, but you with the body of Christ, your Christian family. Right here. Right here. Extends beyond that. If it's not here for you, I mean this with all my heart. I'm not free about everything in my life, but I am free on this. I don't need anybody to be here. I got Jesus. If you all disappear this week, I'll go on with the Lord and be blessed. That's not terrible. <laughs> I'll be sad and I'll miss you, but I'm not here to have a crowd listen to me. And I don't have to have my church be the one that everybody goes to. It's not my church. It's God's. And if it's not here, then find where it is. But don't go off into never, never land where all these people are pouring out of the church for every reason in the world. And I understand all the bad stuff. But I look at you and you're the good reason for people to be here. Don't sell yourself short. You're the good reason to talk and pray with people. Some of you are doing way better at this than me, and I commend you and thank you for your testimony, for your reaching out beyond the borders of this building or your household. 
Some of you are doing great at this. This isn't, uh, for me, this is like I'm so thankful that I have people around me. I do need you. But if you left, I would go find other people and I would plug in again. If you left and gave me a lot of hardship and pain, I would cry. And then I would go find a body of believers to be with. I've done it before. And I'll do it again if I have to. And what I'm saying is not a big talk, Rick. I'm saying you have to decide why you do what you do. You don't do it for the immediate people that are here because you like them. Because if you start to not like them, you'll quit and give up. Is your purpose not greater than that? Your purpose for being in the body of Christ is that he's the head and we are in his body. And you can't say to me, Rick, I really like you and want to spend time with you and enjoy you and get to know you better. I said, good, let's, Gail and I will come over with you. We'll go out to dinner together. Go, oh, well, I don't really want Gail there. I don't really like Gail. <laughs> well, that wouldn't happen. You'd more say, Gail, we really like you, but we don't want Rick. But, but I would say, you know, thanks for the invite, but I'm not interested in building a friendship where you diss my wife. She's, she's my bride. And if she's not important to you long, you don't have to love her in some special, super way to impress me or anything. But you can't be saying, I like you and I don't like your wife and I don't want anything to do with her, but I want to do with you. Sorry. I'm a little more committed to her than you. She's my bride. Don't tell me you love Jesus, but you hate his church. Or you're sick of his church. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. The church has many faults and many needs. And many failures, and I'm one of them. And I admit it. I'm not the man I wish I was and want to be. But many of you helped me be that man. I'm not suggesting I want you all to leave. You know what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to be committed to Jesus and then his people. And it needs to matter. And you have to and I have to, instead of being tempted by all the people that flake out on the kingdom, you have to let that motivate you. I'm not going to be that person. I am not going to be that person. I won't ask you if you're with me. I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> but I will ask you to stand. It starts here in the body of Christ. I'm going to pray and then we're going to pray together. So, Father, 